Nearly 30 million tourists a year visit Japan, many of whom travel to Tokyo. On the surface, Tokyo looks like a vibrant, wealthy metropolis. Visitors are blinded by flashing neon lights, amazed by the efficient train systems, and impressed at how clean and orderly the city is. But what often gets overlooked is the fact that Tokyo suffers many of the same urban issues confronting large cities around the world, namely homelessness and social inequality. What does homelessness in Tokyo look like? What steps have the municipal government taken in response? And what are popular attitudes towards the homeless? I'm Olivia. I'm Andrea. I'm Shannon. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Connor. And this is a Japan on the Record special student podcast. As of January 2018, the Ministry of Welfare claims that the total number of homeless in Japan is 4,977, which is the lowest in 15 years. More than 90% of this total, which is 4,607, were men, and 177 were women, and the rest is unconfirmed. However, there are other organizations in Tokyo which state that the actual number of homeless in Japan is 2.5 times the amount stated by the official tally. Going around Tokyo, where would you see the homeless people? They can be primarily found in urban parks and along riverbanks, streets, train stations, and what are called yoseba or doyagai. For example, if you walked along the Sumida River, you would be able to find many homeless people living in blue tarp shacks. In Japan, over 90% of homeless are male, and the average age is in one's 50s and 60s. The homeless tend to have low levels of education. As well as rural backgrounds. Some have criminal records, and some are too frail or too old for day labor. In Japanese, the term for homelessness is homeless. There is, however, another term that the government uses to describe them, which is lojo sekatsha, which translates to one who lives on the street. This term starts to imply that the homeless actually have homes but choose not to go to them, opting to live on the streets instead. And I think, as we'll see in Japan, the state of having a home can be very ambiguous for psychological and sociological reasons, and the definition of having a home differs drastically between the individual and the state. For example, some people live in doyagai. A doyagai is a flophouse that offers cheap temporary housing that charges by the day. The rooms are about $20 USD a night and are easily rented out with no questions asked. Despite being a flophouse, they are orderly and clean inside and out. And you wouldn't be able to easily tell it's the skid row. Doyas offer small private rooms of about three tatami mats and clean communal areas such as kitchens and baths. Going around Tokyo, it might be hard to spot a doya, but many are located in the Sanya area in the Taito and Arakawa wards. Sanya is the skid row of Tokyo where low caste workers used to live in the Edo period and now provides housing for day laborers, other homeless, and has started to become cheap accommodation for tourists. At the height of the economy and the construction industry, Sanya was frequented by as many as 1 or 200,000 day laborers. 10 to 15,000 men occupied the doyagai. These men were the men that built Tokyo, working on bridges, buildings, and highways all over the country. For instance, the monumental projects of the Tokyo Tower, the 1964 Olympic Games Stadium, and the bullet train railways. 
However, after the bubble economy burst, the construction industry could no longer employ many of the day laborers, and with no daily income, a lot of people living in Doyagai ended up living on the streets. After the collapse of the economy, many white-collar workers for small businesses also found themselves without jobs and homeless. And as a result, the homeless population began building around urban areas. Homelessness is seen around the world, and some in Western nations may see homelessness or homeless individuals holding signs asking for spare change. They may be residing in popular intersections as well as popular streets, and sometimes may even come up to you asking for spare change. However, in Japan, the characteristics of the homeless are not similar to those of Western nations, as in Japan, individuals rarely ask for money. Are very careful about cleanliness, keeping hands, hair, clothing as clean as possible.、Uh, very patient when volunteers distribute food, as they wait long hours to wait their turn. They're very strongly against revealing their personal lives, their pasts, or what put them on the streets, and this is due to the shame they feel and how they may have failed their family and loved ones, as well as a very a hu- huge absence of drug abuse,、uh, unlike the one seen here in Vancouver, Canada, or in other places around the world. We heard from Olivia about how most of the homeless population is made up of middle-aged male day laborers who either reside in doyas or live outdoors in public spaces. But if we broaden the scope of what can be considered as homelessness in hyper-urbanized cities like Tokyo or Osaka, there is an increasing variety of alternative forms of homelessness. One prominent alternative is the phenomenon of net cafe refugees. Also known as cyber homelessness, net cafe refugees are individuals who take up long-term residence in 24-hour internet or comics cafes, also known as manga cafes. Most of these refugees are part-time workers who struggle to secure full-time jobs or are unemployed. They began appearing in the late 1990s after the Japanese asset bubble collapsed in 1991, but increased significantly in numbers in the mid-2000s. There are certain advantages to living in a net cafe over other forms of accommodation. Net cafes are fully serviced and are usually open 24 hours. A lot of the expenses that come with private residences, such as the utility bill, are significantly lower and are included in the rental rate. Visitors pay for single cubicles by the hour, which are equipped with PCs and/or other video game consoles and entertainment systems. Visitors also have access to a concession area. Which are stocked with a drink bar and a limited selection of convenience store type foods. There are many reasons why people choose to live here, but for the most part, it is a much more accessible and expedient way of securing shelter than applying for public housing. There are three different factors that contributed to the uptick in homelessness seen in the 1990s that actually started in the 1980s. 
So in, in Explored in We Are Not Garbage by Hasegawa Miki, um, the three factors were economic globalization, associated urban redevelopment and gentrification, and the deregulation and privatization of policies. Um, so let's first look at economic globalization, which promoted a shift from the manufacturing-based economy to more of a service-based economy. Um, in the 1970s, Japan's manufacturing sector saw a huge fall in profits um, due to labor shortages and rising costs of raw materials from developing countries. Profits fell from 46% in 1970 to a mere 10% in 1975. Thus, Hasegawa argues that with the shift in industry, those who worked in ma- manufacturing were now at a disadvantage as most of were older male workers with low levels of education and now outdated skill set, especially with that shift towards the service economy. This leads us into Hasegawa's second point, which is economic globalization did not only affect the employment among older men, but also had an effect on the availability of low-income housing for them. By the 1980s, Tokyo had begun emerging as a global city and received more and more foreign and transnational businesses branching out into the country. Um, This led to a high demand of urban redevelopment and in turn led to a lot of gentrification. Since the 1950s, low-income workers primarily occupied private rental housing. Hasegawa argues that in the 1980s, the growth of office space and high-income housing in turn led to a skyrocketing of rents for a skyrocketing rent for low-income workers, ultimately pricing them out of their previous homes. However, in lieu of these changes, um, the government, Hasegawa argues, uh, did very little to decrease the impact this would have on vulnerable peoples. For one, in the 1980s, the government attempted to lower trade surplus and increase domestic demand by appreciating the yen, as well as lowering interest rates and easing money supply. This in turn led to the rapid growth of DFI and securities securities investments, which was a major factor that caused the shift from a manufacturing-centered economy to a service-based one. Furthermore, another contribution the government had made towards the uptick in homelessness in Japan is the active promotion of urban redevelopment and consequently consequently gentrification. In an attempt to continue to increase domestic demand, the government deregulated restrictions on urban redevelopment and made mass amounts of land available for private use, thus prioritizing high- and middle-income housing over low-income housing. To encourage the building and purchasing of housing and land, the government even introduced new tax benefits and supply grant and aids to the Housing Loan Corporation. By 1986, the government even abolished the rent control order, which had been put in place to protect low-income workers' um, housing security through rent regulation. So, in turn, low-income workers and their developing programs were pushed to the background, which worked to aggravate the rapid growth of homelessness seen in the 1990s, making low-income workers very vulnerable to the economic downturn, such as the bubble burst. So next, um, we'll have Shannon talk about how, due to the bubble burst, it put new demands on the government to provide welfare for the people. Thanks, Jennifer. The Japanese welfare system is often characterized as a productivist welfare regime. The productivist welfare regime is unique to East Asian countries. It defies the typical theoretical frameworks used to characterize welfare states. These are known as the three Esping-Anderson approaches, the first of which is called the liberal Anglo-Saxon regime, which is the approach used in Canada, the US, and the UK. The second is known as the social democratic welfare approach, which is used mainly in the Scandinavian countries. And the third is the conservative corporatist approach, an approach that Germany helped establish. 
The conservative corporatist approach is characterized as enterprise welfare, where social benefits are mainly provided by companies and corporations. Long-standing, full-time employees are considered the ideal beneficiaries, and those with a tenuous employment history have a much harder time obtaining these benefits. Japan's welfare system is an amalgamation of all of these models, possessing elements of each. The productivist welfare state of Japan is based on a developmentalist attitude and Confucian value-infused culture. The developmentalist attitude is manifested by a strong central interventionist government run by elite bureaucrats that are central to creating stable economic and industrial policies. They focus on building strong financial markets, encouraging personal savings, promoting investment in capital, as well as investing in universal basic education, which is seen as a way to strengthen human capital development. The Confucian value-based culture set the tone for how social welfare would be practiced in Japan. Generally characterized by informality, welfare obligations in pre-industrial Japan were usually fulfilled by strong notions of familial roles and intergenerational interaction, especially in terms of caring for the elderly. The state relied heavily on this informal method of social welfare, which played a factor in its minimal interventionist approach for many years. The Civil Code of 1896, during the Meiji period, had an article that emphasized a duty of support for direct kins and siblings. This family support duty principle was also embedded in the Public Assistance Act of 1950, which was created to address the high levels of poverty following the Second World War. In the 1960s and 70s, close cooperation between politicians, bureaucrats, and the business sector was a crucial strategy to achieving state economic objectives that one scholar has described as economy first, redistribution later. Between the creation of the Public Assistance Act and the bubble burst in 1991, social policy was subordinate to economic and industrial policies and really functioned as a tool to fortify human capital developments. Social policies before the 1980s were generally introduced on an ad hoc basis, that is, to compensate for any harms caused by the economic and industrial policies. We see this in the compensations provided to the victims of environmental hazards and the free health care provided to the elderly, which align with the economy-first policy. For the most part, in a productivist, capitalist order, social rights are only extended to the productive sectors in society. The quality of enterprise welfare is largely dependent on the type of company it is and an employee's rank within that company. This structure reinforces the economy-first policy, where employees are rewarded for their devotion to their work. This shapes the substance of social programming as well, which is heavily focused on pensions and health insurance. In fact, close to 90% of Japan's total social expenditures in the 1990s were spent on pensions and health care. Although one scholar notes that this figure is ironic, given that it would have made more sense to shift spending towards employment insurance, especially after the Asian financial crisis in 1997, which exacerbated the unemployment situation. Instead, the government opted to reduce spending on employment insurance plans and what they call livelihood plans, which is a type of life insurance. As a result, Japan's welfare system in the 1990s, and today as well, is characterized by informal welfare practices, occupational welfare for core workers, and low spending on personal social services. This system is designed to support self-help, mutual aid, and enterprise welfare. With limited government assistance available to those without homes, some of the most vulnerable groups in Japanese society, 
How is it that the city responds to the large number of people living on the streets? It's not so much the cities, but rather NPOs, NGOs, and grassroots movements and other foreign aid that have made an effort to provide aid for the homeless. So part of the reason that the city hasn't had a concerted effort to deal with homelessness is that Japan has a lot of stigma about homelessness. A lot of this comes from Japan culturally emphasizing self-reliance a lot. Begging for money on the streets is actually illegal, although most people would not resort to it anyway out of shame. This is especially true for those who became homeless in the 90s, who remember working fondly and find the idea of begging frankly embarrassing. There's a lack of compassion for homeless people, as a lot of Japanese workers are extremely overworked and deal with competitive job markets, and assume homeless people simply do not want to work. This is a misconception, as in fact homeless people desperately want work, and will often do whatever they can to earn money, from day-to-day -day manual labor to collecting cans for recycling. With more and more people losing their jobs and poverty becoming a glaring issue, this stigma is being reduced naturally over time. However, to solve the problem would require government initiatives to modify school curriculum, fund outreach and education campaigns, in order to combat Japanese culture's prevailing lack of compassion for the homeless, and emphasis on self-reliance and more conservative family values. There's no simple solution here, as this is something that has to be consistently worked on through various avenues for generations to truly get rid of stigma. So despite the stigma, there have been some recent movements to provide some short-term solutions and aid. One big development was in 2002, when the Japanese government enacted the Special Act in regards to supporting the autonomy of the homeless population. This law was meant to give support to homeless people in finding employment, as well as residents in either private or public housing. Basically, they opened up various support centers around the country where homeless people can go to request aid. This has received some opposition, however, and a lot of critics are skeptical about its long-term effectiveness. There are also grassroots movements and organizations like Tokyo Spring, who do homeless patrols where they go on the streets and give food, clothing, and other forms of help to homeless people. There have also been efforts to get food donations from restaurants making surplus produce and donate those. There are various charities. There are efforts to build new homeless shelters. But none of these solve the real issue of homelessness. So one long-term solution that has been suggested by uh, Japanese politicians, including the new party Nippon, which is a liberal party, and the Greens Japan Party, a left-wing green-slash-environmentalist party, is guaranteed minimum income for all Japanese citizens. So as mentioned before, social welfare in Japan is still relatively behind the standards of other developed countries, and healthcare generally requires the individual to be employed to access, and the application itself for health welfare can be a difficult process. There's an image or in stereotype of poverty being only the most extreme kind, and applicants for welfare often describe having to hide their possessions like electronics and clothes when going through screening to prove they fit this image of poverty. There's also a large stigma around receiving welfare, despite the fact that in 2011 the number of people on welfare nationwide reached 2 million, the highest it has been since launching the welfare system in 1950. The societal safety net is expected to be covered by the family, not the government. In fact, the rule is that you can only apply for welfare if your family cannot provide for you, so that first has to be checked and verified by the government. Many homeless and impoverished people don't want their family to find out about their situation because of the societal shame and stigma, and so they avoid applying for welfare altogether. So guaranteed minimum income as a universal form of welfare would maybe help to alleviate some of this stigma. And guaranteed minimum income is essentially a check that people who do not meet certain standards, such as full-time employment and permanent residence, receive that sort of scales depending on their situation. This can be funded by raising taxes on high earners, something which the current Japanese government is actually already doing. However, they're also lowering corporate tax, which if raised could bring the country a lot of money. 
France has had a version of this since the 1980s, and Ontario, Canada has recently experimented with it, although that was cut by the new Conservative government. An alternative to guaranteed minimum income is universal basic income. Essentially, universal basic income is a fixed check that everyone would receive regardless of any classification outside of age, including employment, residency, etc. The main difference from guaranteed minimum income is that that is specifically directed towards the poor and also would vary from situation to situation. Universal basic income is a more progressive system and has a lot of benefits, but it may not be viable in Japan at the moment, as it would be much more expensive, the cultural stigma around receiving handouts would create difficulties, and it is doubtful that the conservative government would consider adopting it. Does this structural stigma accurately reflect popular attitudes towards homelessness in Japan? To answer Andrea's question, uh, yes, the overall general population does have the same sort of mindset towards homelessness as with the Japanese government. The Japanese population sees homeless as a result from a failure of an individual to be responsible for themselves. They are often termed lazy and undeserving of aid. Furthermore, there are, there's very little news coverage on homelessness, so it causes a very little general understanding about homelessness and how individuals became homeless. With regards to public's reaction when they see a homeless person, they often evoke a sense of fear and loathing, and such people are often regarded as the dregs of the economic miracle, the defiled other threatening to pollute the entire social system. Uh, the reaction is often disassociation, keeping separate the social categories of them and us. And this mindset translates to action that seems intended on removing the homeless from sight and not helping them. An example of this can be seen in the homeless camps where they are isolated into sections where blue tents are set up for them and often made to intentionally made to be out of sight from the general population. With the negative attitudes seen towards the homeless population, we see a large consequence in their mental health, as seen in one study that out of 346 subjects, 31% of them reported having either depressive disorder, schizophrenia, alcoholism, anxiety disorder, insomnia, and dementia. Furthermore, 12 out of 86 individuals living on streets reported having suicidal ideations in the last two weeks. and. 51 out of the 346 has repeatedly wished to be dead in the past two weeks. difficulty with dealing with mental health among the homeless is that in Japanese society in general, there's a huge stigma against mental health and mental health awareness, and so the homeless are doubly stigmatized in this sense. The stigma in Japan around mental health is often manifest in people hiding their mental issues, in parents refusing to treat their children properly, and in mental health care generally being very inaccessible. Suicide rates are extremely high and are continuing to go up. In addition, the sensationalist media still reports on mental health as something violent, dangerous, and frightening, and sympathizes with parents who can't deal with their children's mental illness, further increasing the stigma. There's a lot of misconceptions around mental health, especially with more extreme cases like schizophrenia, 
where people believe that these individuals simply cannot function, when in reality, a lot of people with schizophrenia and other serious mental illnesses can function perfectly well and even have employment. Among the homeless, mental illness is 42%, which is much higher than the general population. Dealing with all these problems can be done through education, strict laws for those who discriminate against the mentally ill, and funding for accessible mental health services, including medication, therapy, and employment for those with mental illnesses. So after the bubble burst, there's an increasing diversification of inequalities. Different groups outside of elderly or older men were increasingly becoming more susceptible to poverty. Uh, some of these groups include um, the el elderly, women, and part-time or contract workers. So let's first look at the elderly. In a study done by the OECD, or Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, it found that poverty rates amongst those 66 and over were substantially higher compared to the younger population. Why might this be? Well, there are a couple factors to contribute to this. Um, as explored before, J Japan's social system is characterized by an emphasis on self-help and mutual aid. Also, there is an obligation towards a sort of informal or family care and intergenerational um, co-residence. Um, for example, in the 1980s, the state continued to retract its commitment for Social Security as free health care system for older people was abolished, thus relieving the public sector from responsibility and pushing it upon the private sector. sector. This is followed up by in the 1990s when the government also reduced benefit levels of the pension plan and raised age requirements. Um, because of these legislation changes, it ultimately worked to further push state welfare responsibilities towards the individual or family. Yet there are issues with this, with this as well because of the changing availability of this informal or family care. Informal care simply refers to usually an older person within a family being, be, being taken care of by a female family member, such as a daughter or a wife. However, with more and more women entering the workforce and less choosing to stay at home as homemakers, the availability of this informal care was decreasing. Thus, the welfare of an elderly individual becomes neither the state's nor the family's, but rather their own. Um, second, um, in regards to women, much like the elderly, they also face a lack of support from the government in regards to social security. For example, the public pension system in Japan was developed under the notion of a nuclear family. Um, so it assumes one, man and woman are married, two, husbands are regular employees, while wives are dependent homemakers. And three, the divorce, that divorce is uncommon. Yet this idea of the nuclear family changed over time as more and more women once again began to enter the workforce. And in the 1980s, divorce rates actually saw an increase. Um, thus, the system becomes more and more outdated as um, more and more women didn't fit its rigid restrictions. <laughs> Furthermore, coupled with wage inequalities between men and women, unmarried and divorced women are now more likely to face poverty within their lifetime. Um, finally, to touch upon part-timers and contract workers, after the collapse of the bubble economy, many companies began to hire part-time employees to alleviate labor costs. Um, however, the issue with this was that most contract or part-time jobs offered no benefits. Therefore, um, people didn't have any security nets for the future. And that brings us to the end of this episode on homelessness in Japan. Thanks for tuning in, and join us next time for another special student podcast episode on Japan on the Record. Thank you.